0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: I am just beyond thrilled to introduce our special guest today. And I know I say this every week. We have a special guest. Today we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Bill McNabb. He is the chief executive officer and chairman of the Vanguard Group, which is one of the world's largest Investment firms managing 3.1 trillion dollars. Everybody knows who Vanguard is. They are essentially the father of indexing, um, and have have really just made a tremendous dent on the world of investing. Uh, Bill was really generous with his time. He spoke to, hung out for almost two hours, and we talked about everything from what Vanguard was like in the old days to. Who influenced him and, and where Vanguard is going in, in the future. I, I thought this was a master class in exactly what is happening in the world of investing today and what is the right approach to to either being an investor or being an investment management firm. Um, he is incredibly accomplished. He joined Vanguard 30 years ago. Next month is his 30-year anniversary. He became CEO just before the financial crisis blew up. A month before Lehman and AIG and Citi and everybody else blew up, he was named uh, CEO. And really, talk about having a front seat uh, on the past 30 years of changes in the financial world. For those of you who are either investors or work in the world of investing, this is an absolute master class. We spoke for so long, I think you may want to listen to this in two halves. All of it is absolutely fascinating. He's really an incredibly insightful, accomplished guy, and um, I think you're in for a treat. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Vanguard CEO Bill McNabb.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: My special guest today, and I say special guest every week, but this is really a special guest, is Bill McNabb. He is the CEO and chairman of the Vanguard Group, which manages a little over $3.1 trillion. Bill, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Barry, it's a privilege to be here.
1: So let's give a quick, I don't want to spend too much time on your CV, um, but a quick background: You've been with Vanguard since June 1986. That means your 30-year anniversary coming, is up. coming up next yeah. month. That's that's amazing.
0: It's uh, been ama- it was really an, a remarkable turn of good luck. I uh, was working for a firm here, which is now J.P. Morgan Chase, mm-hmm. and uh, got a call to go to Vanguard. And Vanguard was this little tiny uh, mutual fund firm in 1986. And I went down, loved it, and, you know, sometimes better to be lucky than smart.
1: That That's uh, certainly for sure. Today, you are the third CEO in Vanguard history following Jack Brennan, who was actually a prior guest yeah. on the show, and some guy named uh, John Bogle. Some, some guy
0: who's sort of <laughs> legendary out there.
1: To say the least, yeah. legendary. I would love to bring him. In fact, he may be one of the few people I'm willing to travel to him with a recorder and interview him because... He is truly one of the giants, a legend in finance. Absolutely, um, you know, f- uh, founder of the firm. What was it like to work with Bogle? That had to be mind blowing.
0: Well, I think the the great thing Jack did was at the beginning of the firm, and I was there, you know, a few years after the founding. Was uh, he created this corporate structure, which is very different than anything else? As you know, we're owned by our funds, and therefore our investors.
1: In other words, people buy. Vanguard mutual funds essentially are the owners of Vanguard Group.
0: That, that's right, and and we have a saying that Jack um, uh, promoted a lot in the early days that strategy follows structure, so everything we do had to be had to reflect that structure, which basically means just put the investor first in everything you do, and that culture really permeated uh, the organization right from the get-go. And the other thing Jack did a, a really good job of was the internal culture, which was, uh, I, for lack of a better phrase, lived by the golden rule. And so there's really not a lot of hierarchy at Vanguard. I'm um, certainly you know we pay our You know, best-performing portfolio managers higher than those who aren't. And, you know, you have all kinds of different uh, compensation arrangements. But at the end of the day, everybody treats each other um, peer-to-peer. And it doesn't matter what your role is. And, you know, it makes it very different than most firms uh, where there's often an all-star kind of cast to it. And uh, it makes it coming to work every day a blast uh, because of the people side.
1: That that must be – Uh, a crazy, fantastic uh, environment. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Undergraduate government major at at Dartmouth, and then you end up getting an MBA from Wharton. How did you find your way to finance? What did you do in between?
0: So there was a little bit of a side tour there Um, after I graduated from Dartmouth. I think much to my mom's chagrin, uh, instead of coming to work in New York, I ended up um, going to teach first-year Latin at a boys' school. First year Latin. First so, year are Latin. you
1: fluent in Latin?
0: Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think back in the day I was reasonably good at it, but I think the real thing was it was a private school. I could coach three sports. So, I was looked at as a very cheap asset. You know, I could do a lot of things for not a lot of money. It was a recession when I graduated uh, in 1979. And oh, sure. I remember. Yeah. That. yeah you know, I so any, right. any, any, any. Any kind of work was good work, as far as I was concerned. But those couple of years of teaching actually were really, um, in some ways, very instrumental in terms of shaping the way I think about the world. I then went to Wharton, um, you know, got a great education there. Spent a couple of years um, at what's now J.P. Morgan Chase, and then found my way back to Vanguard.
1: So, was it kind of surprised to get a phone call from uh, Vanguard? Oh. How, how many years had you been with?
0: JP Morgan. So I've been with uh, I've been uh, I'd been at the bank for three years, and I was working basically in a group that was undoing bad leverage buyouts, and um, we were sort of the precursor to the, what became the private equity desk um, farther down the road. And uh, it was really fascinating work. I I, I love the work. I actually liked the team I was on, but I was a little dissatisfied with the bank's overall strategy and some of the cultural aspects. And I, my wife was from Philly. I'd gone to grad school there. So we thought about um, going back. And I get this call from this upstart firm. Um, they were looking to hire a GIC product manager. I had no idea what that was. Um, it's before the internet, and it's Guaranteed Investment Contracts. Mm-hmm which were uh, early on the biggest asset class in 401k plans.
1: Really? So this is before a number of tax changes that kind of yeah, made that go away? Well, yeah, and, and, and really
0: you know what happened when, when, as interest rates came down, um, GICs were a great deal. You could basically, when I uh, was investing in them, you could get an 8 or 9% yield, and you could keep a constant dollar price. Because it was an insurance contract, so you know basically investors were getting three-year bonds with a, a money market-like price, and so for the four hundred and one k investor, it was a godsend. And you know it's, these plans were just you know beginning. Um, this was really a very popular asset class. So I didn't know anything about it though.
1: So we're, <laughs> it, in the last minute we have left in this segment, there there are a number of new products we'll talk about yeah. a little later in the conversation, but. Aside from Bogle, who were your early mentors?
0: So um, a couple, um, you know, Jack Brennan, who was my predecessor, he and I struck up a pretty good friendship early on. And, you know, he ended up being a, a little bit of a mentor um, before I went to work for him directly. There was another fellow, Jim Gately, who um, one of our great leaders at Vanguard, who I, I would tell you, I learned a ton from him. He, he was a guy who um, had been at Prudential Asset Management and had bought a lot of boutiques, and he brought with him a worldliness that um, I had never experienced before and really taught me what it was like to be a professional.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Bill McNabb. He is the chairman and chief executive officer of a little shop called The Vanguard Group. They manage about $3 trillion, That's trillion with a T. $3 trillion. Let's talk a little bit about what took place over the past five years. Vanguard garnered somewhere around six hundred and fifty billion dollars in inflows and in net cash flows. That's more than the next six companies combined, and and there are some estimates that say about a billion dollars per day flow into Vanguard. What is that about?
0: Well, I think you know our. Um focus on cost and doing the right thing for investors has resonated at a level that even we are surprised by and uh, yeah it's been very gratifying um, to say we, the least but we think we're we think we're and again all humility aside we think we're winning for the right
1: reasons you know we're we're not out there trying to promote something that we're not so let's I'm gonna skip ahead to another question about cost why is it that managing costs is so effective? Um, for investors. So when you look at all
0: the work that's been done, and, you know, Morningstar did a pretty seminal piece two, three years ago, where they broke all funds into quartiles, and the highest expense quartile had the worst performance, and the lowest expense quartile had the best performance, and the performance was very consistent and persistent. And so it just reinforced a notion that we'd had, cost is the one thing you can control, and it's not like other consumer goods where you know you pay more, you in theory get more.
1: Um, in investing, that's has not been the case. Right. So a BMW and a Volkswagen, the BMW may cost more, maybe you get a little more, but it's the opposite in, in investing. So let's talk about what some people have called the Vanguard effect. Well, um, again, uh, this was dubbed, um, as we
0: enter new markets, you immediately see prices fall. In fact, I think what's happening here is our competitors are getting a little bit smarter. Rather than waiting for us to take a lot of market share, they're actually trying to meet us more quickly. A couple of my colleagues at at Vanguard have said, you know, are you worried about it? And I said, not really, because at the end of the day, first of all, we're built to do this every day, Mm -hmm. um, and we're built to get better and better. But second of all, it's great for investors. So if investors have more choice low cost, then we've got to get smarter and more innovative and quicker as to how we compete uh, on that, on, at
1: that level. Who who asks you if, if you're worried about it? It, it? Clearly, a billion a day, hey, you guys are doing this wrong. You're only getting a billion a day in new inflows. You got to mix it all up. It, it, it seems like you guys have cracked the code. No, You know,
0: I think it's, again, we we feel great about what's been going on, but, you um, Andy Grove is one of my uh, favorite executives and he has this phrase, only the paranoid Mm -hmm. survive. And uh, I really believe that. So the minute minute any complacency starts to show itself at Vanguard, we get very uh, skittish.
1: So let's go back to your original principles. There there are four principles which I really like and this will give people a sense of how you approach the world. Have a goal, maintain a balanced and diversified portfolio, pay attention to costs, and focus on the long term. How did these four principles come about? So I would say these four principles
0: have been present since our founding, and and we had talked about them in different ways. But about four or five years ago, as we were kind of rethinking um, our message to the world, uh, it became clear to us that we need, needed to distill it in even simpler English for people and really make it stark. And I, I, I think these do that. And people look at it and they say, boy, it's not complicated and I say, yeah, but how many people don't follow this? And you know for me, especially the goal setting, this is the place where I see most investors miss they don't have very clear well-defined goals. and you need to know that if you're going to you know construct an appropriate portfolio.
1: One of the comments that I often hear from people, Who have already accumulated a lot of wealth is, all right, what am I going to need to do to beat the benchmarks over the next couple of years? And the response is always, why do you feel, you've already won, you've got enough money, you can never spend it all. Why do you feel the need to keep competing? You have to, that pivot from wealth accumulation to, okay, now we have to preserve this and eventually distribute it, whether it's philanthropy or what have you, people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. I couldn't agree more. You know, At the end of the day,
0: it's it's um, define what you're trying to do and then we wanna be able to help you get there.
1: So let's talk about something that's really quite fascinating. You're probably best known for indexing, although we'll get to some of the active funds, which is about a third, 35%. Yep, yep. Um, but the story of indexing is really quite fascinating It came out of Wells Fargo, which had created it for institutional clients. How did you guys end up taking over the Wells Fargo index product and turning it around and offering it to retail investors? So when when Vanguard was founded formally in in 1975,
0: um, Jack Bogle and the team, I think, correctly identified that cost was a differentiator. So even before indexing, we were talking about cost. Now, we weren't particularly low cost at that point, but we were aspiring to be so. Um, This idea about um, indexing seemed to be the perfect manifestation of a low cost, very efficient way to invest. And you had the Wells phenomenon in the pension side you had, you know, Burt Malkiel's Random Walk Down Wall mm-hmm. Street, which was written around the same time. You had Charlie Ellis's Winning the Loser's Game, which was written, you know, around the same time.
1: Charlie also on your board of uh, directors, yeah, and uh, he was a guest here. What a what a tremendous gentleman, tr- tremendous, tremendous person. And I think the
0: genius was to say, if this idea is good enough for a sophisticated institution, why isn't it good enough for the average small investor? And so we took the indexing concept and turned it into a mutual fund, which no one had done.
1: So in the last minute we have left, let's talk about what percentage of the investable universe is now indexed. Um, How big is too big for indexes? I've I've read some things by people, I don't agree with it, that say, hey, at a certain point, you know, indexing is just too big and and you need to be more active. Yeah, so-
0: First of all, I don't agree with the premise. But even if you did, indexing is still a very small percentage of the world's market cap. So in the u s, the you know the big change in mutual funds has been indexing has now risen to be about thirty five percent of u s. mutual funds. but mutual funds, on the equity side, only represent about 25% of of the equity market. And in the institutional side, it's a a much smaller percentage. So indexing is still less than 20% overall in the U.S. And if you go abroad, it's a
1: couple percentage points. Really tiny. So there's a huge opportunity for it to become much more significant. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bill McNabb, who took over as CEO of the Vanguard Group. How's this for timing? August 2008, and in case you forgot, that was about a month before the world's really blew up. What was it like running an asset management shop in the middle of that turmoil?
0: In a word, it was frightening, um, to be very honest. It was, um, at the same time... Um it probably will be one of the defining parts of my career in that um, the team that I worked with, we got a chance to experience things I hope no one else ever gets to experience. And we got a chance to, I think, influence events a little bit and, and, and hopefully move things in a good direction for our clients. But it was it was amazing to, to watch it all
1: unfold. So what were the, some of the specific challenges both you personally as a new CEO I mean you had been with Vanguard since 1986 but you're taking over running the shop what challenges did you face and what sort of challenges did the staff have to deal with yes in in the the midst of that
0: so there were sort of three levels of challenges so the first was pretty tactical but big the whole money fund industry was under um you know fire and what were we going to do with um, the money market funds that we were managing, mm-hmm. and how was the Treasury's rules and 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 the intervention that was occurring? So we can, you know, that was a big topic. The
1: second that that was the whole breaking the buck situation. Yeah, of so what reserve happens. reserve
0: fund broke the dollar, and the question was, would anybody else? You know, we believed very strongly that our funds were incredibly well positioned. Um, our prime fund which you know is supposed to be in commercial paper CDs and so forth. We were 65% government treasury at that point. so it was super safe. We had been very worried about what was going on in the housing market. but there were still you were watching the rest of the industry um, struggle with it. you know the second thing was we were watching our investors, Behavior and and listening to them call and ask us, you know, what's happening and you know what should we do? That was the biggest question. What should we do? And then the third thing we actually had our our staff saying, what's this mean to all of us? Because as you may recall, uh, it was Armageddon in Mm -hmm. in financial services, and people were laying um, thousands of workers off. And so we we did you know three really important things. One, we you know, on the money fund side, we knew we were we were in really good shape, um, and we got engaged with the SEC in terms of beginning to move the reforms forward right from the get go. Uh, second, in terms of our investors, um, most of our competitors actually stopped talking you know to the press and stopped going out and uh, meeting with clients. At least that's what we heard we were very vocal and very visible. And we were very clear that we didn't know how this was going to all unfold, but that you had to step back and, and again, sort of go back to basic investment principles here. And what we saw was it had a real calming influence on our investors. And, you know, I did a a webcast um, probably October of 09 or 08. And I think it was downloaded a hundred thousand times in twenty four wow. hours. It was it was a remarkable number.
1: Pe- people were hungry for information, right? They wanted, and, and... and not just hand waving and right. people running around screaming. But you come across as a, if I may say this personally, a rather calm, collected individual. You're not one of these people that are going to be running around with your quote unquote hair on fire.
0: I think it was really important to project that because you know there were certainly lots of commentary out there that the world was ending as we knew it. We didn't see it that way, but we knew it was gonna be rough. And then the third thing we did, um, which again will seem tactical, but it was really important. We said to our people, don't worry about your jobs. You all have jobs and you're, you're here to serve the client. And stop worrying about, no one's gonna lose their job over this. We want you focused on being here for the client. And boy, that set a tone inside. I also think it really helped with the client interactions because people had confidence when they were talking to clients. I I was
1: going to say that really has to come across in all sorts of subliminal ways. If you can tell when you're on the phone with someone who's worried about their job, uh, I've never heard or read that before. Has that been publicly disclosed? No,
0: I haven't really talked much about it. um, it In the midst
1: of the crisis, you said – so how many people work at Vanguard back then? uh, Back then it was about 12,500. So you said – Nobody's getting fired. There are right. no layoffs. We're good. We're going to make it through this fine. Right. And I think what it allowed us to do was to be really well positioned as the
0: markets began to turn and you know activity began to pick up. We were firing on all cylinders and we were ready to serve clients. We were a- we actually kept our investment in the business going during this period.
1: So in our last minute or so in this in the segment, the one data point that really stunned me really surprised me transaction levels during the great financial crisis at Vanguard were actually much lower than normal what does that say about the firm and what does that say about your investors
0: well I think it says a couple things one um, our our investors were listening to um, all of the things we've been trying to put forth over the years that you have to think long term two um, we have a lot of 401k uh, investors and um, they were Saving for
1: retirement is long-term, so don't react. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today, Bill McNabb. He is the chairman and CEO of the Vanguard Group, which manages $3.1 trillion, Is that right? That's right. $3.1 trillion, That's trillion with a T. I have to keep emphasizing that. And let's talk a little bit about the future of investing and the way things have been developing, changing you had, you had a comment not too long ago about some of the worst products that Wall Street has thought of. I have a few of them. I wanna bounce them off, off you, see what you think. Uh, I assume you're not a big fan of the liquid alts. What do you think of those? So again, everything in theory can have its place, but in general, what
0: we're seeing in the liquid alt space is um, not all that attractive from an investor perspective. It's really expensive, and I'm not sure it's providing any kind of real value add and not especially liquid. Not especially liquid and, and maybe not as much of a diversifier as you would hope. Doesn't mean it can't be done. Okay. Unconstrained bond funds. So predicting which way interest rates are gonna go and currencies are gonna go, really difficult to do. Haven't seen more than a couple human beings do it and it's a question of whether they're lucky or whether they're actually doing it well. So we're we're big fans of define what you're trying to do in the bond market
1: and stick to it. Hedge funds with a mutual fund wrapper. In other words, uh, uh, allowing individuals to buy what we've called muppet funds, buying hedge funds through a mutual fund. It's a compensation scheme as
0: far as I'm concerned. You know, people are just figuring out how to get paid a lot for um, not adding a lot of value.
1: How about structured derivatives? Structured derivatives.
0: So again, in general, I I think not a good idea. Um, These are instruments that, Derivatives in general are incredibly helpful in de-risking portfolios and managing um, subtle um, changes to a portfolio. But what you see in a lot of these is a lot of leverage or a lot of implicit leverage, and uh, not clear to me um, that the investors really understand the risks they're taking. Not
1: not a whole lot of de-risking in these uh, instruments. So, but all technology isn't bad. And very recently, you guys launched what some people have derisively called a robo-advisor, but essentially a software algorithm-driven online advisor which immediately leapt over all the other advisors and at the time of the announcement or shortly thereafter, it had eight billion in it. Um, what what do you call that? And let's talk a little bit about that. So we that. call it personal advisor services. And the idea here was um,
0: we had been running an advisory service for clients with a million dollars, and we'd actually dropped the minimum to half a million. But, you know, that's a big number for a mm-hmm. lot of people. And so the challenge we put out to our team was, can we take the same quality that we're providing our millionaire clients, can we take it all the way down to a $50,000 client? And so we invested, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the technology we trained an awful lot of people because what we're doing is really a combination of technology with a personal touch. And, the, and the, uh, the stark objective was to get this to a price where all in, so advice fee plus the underlying product would be roughly in the half a percentage mm-hmm. point range. And it would be really high quality. And w- so we're very excited about this. I think it's gonna redefine for a certain type of client how advice is provided. And, you know, it's not going to supplant the whole advisor world, um, but it gives small investors in particular a really professional choice, uh, which they
1: don't have today. I spoke to some of the group in your office who actually put that together. They had some questions for us, and I, I made them a bet that you guys would have that at $100 billion within a year or two. And they kind of, this was just as it was launching, and they kind of laughed um, but you launched with uh, eight billion in the first week. What is this up to already?
0: So you know we had some existing client business
1: move over. So mm-hmm. it's up to about seventeen or eighteen billion. So it's a pretty big. Thing already not not a so I'm really not out there on a limb. This is a hundred billion dollar business for you guys. The, relatively soon, the team gets very nervous when I talk about it as well because I've been <laughs> a,
0: a, a, a real promoter of the concept. In fact, they're they're really happy that they're officially launched since I've pre-announced the launch about three different times by accident. So, so that
1: that's pretty fascinating. And, and clearly, you're looking at at that technology and using software as a future product that's, that's going to just do nothing but grow in terms yeah. of, of asset management. So let's talk about some of the other products that are out there. Some people use the um, phrase fundamental indexing. Other people call it smart beta. Smart beta has almost become a buzzword. You guys really don't play in that sandbox, but I have a feeling that one day you're eventually going to end up there. Yeah, so um,
0: very fair point and and implicit question there. So a couple of things. Um, You know, we had growth and value index funds Mm -hmm. a long time, which you could argue were sort of a version of um, uh, some of these factor-based funds, is the way I think about them. So look, I don't have a problem with the concept um, as long as you understand what you're investing in. Um, Smart beta is one of the great marketing terms of all time, you know it implies that it's a better way of indexing. To me, all it is is you're taking an active bet and you're betting on either a single factor or a series of factors, and you're betting that those factors are going to outperform the broad market over some uh, particular uh, period of time. And you know right now, you know midcap you know mid cap value over the last fifteen years has been a really good place to be. Mm-hmm. But you know 1999. All of the value-oriented investors were scratching their heads saying, is value investing dead because large-cap growth was dominating. And so you go through these market cycles where different factors seem to work, and, and they work for you know fairly long periods of time, and then they don't. So to me, it's a bet. And as long as the investor knows that they're taking a bet, they're either overexposed to value or they're overexposed to growth or some combination um, – then i think it can be a legitimate low cost way for somebody to make that investment bet and you know in a sense if you're if instead of investing in a traditional active growth manager if you're buying a bu- if you're buying a factor based fund that's growth oriented you're hopefully doing it at a much lower cost and you're getting the same factor exposure that you would from that traditional growth manager
1: so you guys don't offer anything that's fundamentally indexed there have been pretty I thought significant criticisms about market cap weighting an index. Um any chance we're going to see a factor-based Vanguard fund anytime in the next few years? So two things there. So on on the market cap index the, the
0: reason we're so passionate about that is it's just math at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And you know if you add up everybody in the world, all investors, let's just use the US for now to keep it simple. You add up to the market, and it that is a market-capped market. If you take all your active managers and put them in a box, and then you take all your passive managers and put them in a box, um, there's really no third category, right? There, there's. Um, it used to be individuals were a big mm-hmm. group, but today that's de minimis. All your active managers, by definition, have to add up to the market, and so it's a market minus costs indexers, by definition, add up to the market minus cost. And so it's a zero-sum game at the end of the day. And that's why indexing works. It's just lower cost. It's not that markets are more efficient or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're doing factor-based stuff, you are making a bet against that broad market. And for every winner, there's a loser because in the end, it all adds up to the market. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to us, if you're going to truly index, you want to take advantage of the cost side and that's why market cap makes sense. Now, if you wanna make an active bet, you have a, a view that you know, value is, um, is cheap today versus growth, then you could argue that a factor-based fund can be a really efficient way of doing that. And as we think that through, I think that is going to um, perhaps influence our product development in the future because it could very well be a good way for a manager to make you know, a, an advisor in particular like yourself make that kind of um, uh, bet if that's something that you wanted to do.
1: You know, we've had Rob Arnott of uh, Research Affiliates on, and the argument that he's made is hey, towards the end of a cycle when things get a little crazy, and you could think of 99 2000 as a perfect example, all of the cap weighted items just went berserk and then got crushed on the other side of the cycle. A uh, index that was weighted on earnings or sales or some proportionate measure to the Impact they have on the economy may not quite go quite as high, but it also won't go quite as low. And over the long haul, reducing a little bit of volatility might add some performance. Um, and he's got you know a number of papers on it. And you, of all the people who actually offer that sort of fundamental-based index, you're the notable omission. And it's yep. why? Why I kind of think hey, that's a huge potentially huge marketplace. And if anyone could do it. Inexpensively, it would be you guys.
0: And, and that's a very fair point. I would say, um, and again, we have a lot of respect for what Rob and his team have done. and look, you know you when you look at the data, it's so time dependent. Um, mm-hmm. And you may get a little reduction in volatility depending when you start your period and when you end it. I'm not convinced that over very long market cycles it really matters, and you know, to me, then it becomes the cost. Get the lowest cost index fund you can, and that's really what's going to drive performance.
1: So, in the last minute we have in this segment, uh, let's talk a little bit about high-frequency trading. Mm-hmm. Um, your predecessor, Jack Brennan, said, you know, I've been somewhat critical of HFTs, front-running, Grandma's uh, mutual fund, but Jack tells me it and told me. It helps bring costs down. What, what's your perspective? So you know, net net,
0: it has brought costs down. And, and the way you can look at this is, you can you can look at the history of our index funds, and our traders have actually done this, and we can see that the cost um, of trading has been reduced dramatically. And you see that in terms of our tracking error and so forth. Um, And, you know, again, the data are actually overwhelming over the last 15 years. It doesn't mean that there aren't practices within the high-frequency trading community that we don't, um, you know, that we're not critical of. But one of the things during sort of the the flash crash Mm -hmm. aftermath, there was a lot of let's just ban high-frequency trading. And what we were very afraid of is if you pull that thread... Not quite clear what would be left, um, because the high-frequency trading actually does knit together this very, gra- you know, this very granular, disparate market that we have. So again, we'd like to see, I'd like to see some guardrails put in place to protect people from the front-running. Um, you know, again, I've never been a fan that you know latency should give you an advantage mm-hmm. um, versus somebody who's a mile further away. It doesn't really make any logical sense. I don't think it's making markets better. But I do think conceptually um, you got to be careful around um, being too critical or you know, undoing everything or the markets aren't going to be uh, knit together the way they need to be knitted together. I mean, I, I'm not sure anybody would design the markets with a blank sheet of paper the way they are. But since we've had um, – you know, really since the late 90s um, when we've seen this tremendous expansion of pools of trading, you know, we've really seen a pretty – it's a very different market than when I started out.
1: To, to say the least. Bill, thank you so much for spending so much time. You can hang around a little bit. We'll continue this conversation. Be sure and check out my daily column uh, on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz and check out the rest of our conversation. You could see that at Bloomberg.com or on Apple iTunes. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast portion of our Interview where I basically take the mic out of my ear and not worry about radio segments and loosen my tie. I'm literally, literally doing that. Oh, there goes my subway card. Bill, thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I was really looking forward to this. You guys know, I'm a huge Vanguard fan. I'm a big Jack Brennan fan. I'm somewhat of a Bogle fan, although I do have uh, I have a little bit of a beef with <laughs> with Mr. Bogle and By the way, if- if I think I know where that one's going. If you you ever want to have like a miserable couple of days, write something really negative about Apple, not that I do that, I've been a Mac fanboy forever, and the emails light up. I wrote what I thought was a very measured, very circumspect, (laughs) I I don't even want to call it critique, just, uh, hey, you know, Jack Bogle is a legend and he created- one one of the most successful investing companies in the world but he's kind of anti-etfs he thinks people potentially overtrade them and he's not a big fan of international and you and i both uh, you you really have expanded the whole international business so so let's talk a little bit about um, Mr. Bogle, who by the way, I would love to interview. I would love to sit and talk to him, because I think he's a fascinating guy. I'm, I'm sure he would love to do it. Okay, we'll, we'll set that up, yep. but what about this ETF thing, and what about international? So, you know, ETFs, we look at ETFs as just another product structure,
0: frankly, mm-hmm. um, and what it's allowed us to do is to take the indexing story, the low-cost story, to a much broader group of investors. And because of the way ETFs work, um, for many advisors, for many, especially if you're on a brokerage platform, it's just a lot easier to implement than traditional funds. It does not mean that we endorse day trading or you know minute by minute trading of ETFs. In fact, just the opposite. We believe very strongly that you know long term investing is the way to really uh, accumulate wealth.
1: There, there, w- there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that I remember reading and just falling off my chair laughing about somebody wants to park 40 million dollars in short-term bonds and there's a cost to move in and out of that and you guys said no thanks and the person lost their mind so if you're focused on long term and someone says here's 40 million dollars for for 6 months or 90 days your answer was no all that all that Costs comes on the investors and that's wrong to do.
0: Comes on the current investors. And in that particular case, we were in a a declining yield environment. So it was gonna also diminish the yield of the portfolio Mm -hmm. pretty dramatically. So our portfolio manager uh, appropriately said, no, we're not gonna accept the money. It actually uh, did end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, The guy went to the SEC um, he went to every major news <laughs> publication, and it it turned out to be actually one of the best things that we couldn't have asked for a better story because it really underscored what we believe, which is take care of the existing investor, and the next investor will find you if you if you have a reputation for doing that.
1: I I think one of your competitors had come out and said they're absolutely right. Why would you put your existing investors' cost structure right. at risk? So someone, hey, there are there are mech there are tools. You want to put it in a money market fund? Right. You want to put it somewhere? There's a place to put it, just not short term. Right. Not in that uh, fund, right? Uh, that th- th- I always thought that was pretty amazing because everybody else is so desperately chasing assets to turn around and say forty million dollars is a chunk of money, but no thanks. That that just always stayed with me.
0: Well, in in that particular time, we were a lot littler firm than we are today, and it was a pretty significant purchase, but. Again, you know, it sounds really simplistic, but if you do the right thing, usually in the end, it's a good strategy.
1: Not not a bad um, business mantra. Um, so I have so many questions. I don't even know where to begin. So let me, let me ask you the question that when I was describing this upcoming interview to somebody, someone said to me, hey, you know, those guys only fly coach. Is this true? So we only book
0: coach. Now, I have flown so many miles that I do get upgraded every now and then. So and I by wanted... the
1: way, for radio listeners, you're six two, six three. How tall are you? Six five. Yep. Okay. I'm I'm giving you permission to book a little more legroom. You but don't have to book, coach. I, I I fortunately have enough miles
0: on a couple airlines <laughs> that it's almost automatic. But I, you know, we do. Look, it's the shareholders' money at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and you know, we're not trying to. Um, be holier than thou, but you, you have to always put yourself in the shareholder's shoes. And, you know, basically,
1: is this a good investment or is this time well spent for the the shareholder? That It's a refreshing thing to hear that that is not standard, standard operating procedure at a lot of places. And I, I think the proof is in the pudding. It's pretty clear that whatever you guys are doing, it seems to be working. And if if it's a matter of putting shareholders first, how come everybody isn't doing it?
0: Well, um, I'd like to think that we're hopefully influencing uh, the marketplace so that people are, are are focusing more on it. But look, I think in in most organizations, to be very fair, there's a natural conflict. You know, we're owned by our funds and therefore our investors. So for us, when we say we're putting shareholders first, we're putting both the shareholders of the company, if you will, as well as our clients first, they're the same. Most organizations, they're either privately held or they're publicly traded. And so they have their public shareholders that they have to earn a return for, and mm-hmm. then they have their clients. By definition, that's a conflict and how you balance that, you know, I'm fortunately I'm not that smart. So I need the simplicity.
1: Well, the, the simplicity works. Um, so I mentioned, I'm just thrilled you're doing this interview but you guys really, under normal circumstances, aren't out there in the media. There's not a lot of talking heads. There's not a lot of blah, blah, blah. By definition, you're not gonna be, here's my favorite stock. Here's where we think the market's gonna be in a year. That's anathematic to you. Uh, Why so, so little media generally, and what motivated you to say, hey, this is the middle of a financial crisis, let's say a few words?
0: Well, I think, you know, we we do get—it's interesting. Our media coverage sort of waxes and wanes. We get a lot of nice things written about us and said about us. um, But in terms of, you know, doing the in-person stuff, we find we're in demand when there's a crisis, when things Mm -hmm. are really ebullient, people are— Think we're boring because we're not going to give them the hot stock tip or whatever. But
1: isn't investing supposed to be boring? I, I
0: think it is. and and I think it's three yards in a cloud of dust, <laughs> you know, and if you can just repeat that over and over, you'll be successful. You know, during the crisis, though, we were we tried to be more front and center. We, we felt that there was a real need to um, stress to people we did not think the world was going to end. And as a result, they needed, despite all the emotional trauma that was going on uh, due to the market, they needed to be able to see through that. And if we could help that in any way, you know, we really felt it was our responsibility to do that.
1: And so you guys ventured out and did a little more media than usual? Yeah, we did a lot more media than usual. Um, You know, either our own private webcasts or, you
0: know, um, our chief investment officer at the time, Gus Sauter, and I probably did half a dozen television shows within a month, which would be typically more than we would do in a couple of years.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Gus Sauter. We we briefly- hinted at, at it earlier. Um, he's kind of a legendary guy, isn't he? Uh, yeah, I
0: love Gus, and um, I was very blessed. Um, I joined Vanguard 1986. Uh, Gus joined in 1987 and moved in two doors down, if you will, from my office, and we became really good friends right from the get-go. And one of the things that really was remarkable about Gus is um, the in- the investment guys would all talk about um, what a, how great he was with computer science and he could sort of translate investment ideas into code. Mm-hmm. And the computer guys would all talk about how great he was on the investment side and in math and how he could explain all that to them. And he just had this ability to uh, get stuff done. He also was a great spokesman for us because he got out there and he could take really complicated ideas and boil them down to, um, you know, sort of their, their real basic, most simple concepts. So, who fills that role today? So, um fortunately for us, um, one of the things Gus did was he developed an incredibly deep team. And we then moved one of our key leaders, um Tim Buckley, uh, who had run our retail business over. And some people saw it as a non-traditional move because Tim hadn't grown up in the investment portion mm-hmm. of the business. But he had spent his whole career getting deep on on the investment side, and Gus told me something really interesting right before he retired. He said, "Look, when you're looking for my replacement, you're not going to get somebody who came up the way I did. You know, I he he started out. He traded stocks. He he wrote the original code for optimizing our index funds. You know, he was very hands-on. The group had gotten to be very large. You know, our investment team now several hundred people. Um, you know, wow. we run two plus trillion in Malvern." And so um, he said, you're going to need somebody who's a great leader of people and developer of talent, and you're going to need somebody who can really sort of think um, about the intersection of technology and investing going forward. And Tim met both those criteria really well, and he's just done
1: a fabulous job. So who else has, what other investors have influenced your thought process? And it's really a two-part question. Part one is about investing and thinking about managing other people's money, but the second part is about running an investment business, which I don't know if people realize is a very unique animal compared yeah. to other businesses. So outside
0: of Vanguard, because um, I've had a ton of influences inside the the company, um, you know, from just a pure investment perspective, um, two of my I, I, I actually I run a risk here because I have a lot of people I really enjoy uh, talking to. But um, there's a, the original Windsor team, mm-hmm. uh, John Neff, uh, who was sure. a the legendary value investor. Watching him um, talk about stocks and the way he thought about the markets um, is a young um, person in Vanguard. You know, it was like a free education. It was unbelievable. It was like getting your master's, PhD, and advanced PhD all at once because you, he just was so insightful. He knew more about the companies he was investing in than their own managements did. Wow. Um, I also had the great privilege of watching PrimeCap um, evolve as a firm. We hired PrimeCap very early, and, and PrimeCap was a group that spun out of capital research. Mm-hmm. And the founder was a guy named Howie Scow. And uh, the original team, um, again, they were just so talented. They were, and they were very different than the Windsor team. They weren't nearly, they weren't deep value. They were kind of growthy, but growth at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. But it was more just, we're going to find really good companies, invest in them, and watch. And what was interesting is, um, you know, so we're, from NEFF. I learned being a contrarian is never a bad thing. And from um, Prime Cap I learned about patients. Um, they have very low portfolio turnover one of the lowest turnovers of any active manager. And they would uh, make very concentrated bets as well, which if you're going to invest in active, if you can get low cost and some concentration, I think it gives you your best chance of outperforming.
1: Don't be a closet indexer.
0: That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So those two um, people had huge influence early in my career. You know, in terms of running the business, uh, Charlie Ellis and Burt Malkiel, who you know, uh, were both on our board, certainly were very influential and more at a philosophical level. And, and again, mm-hmm. it was all about the client coming first. And, 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 and it was also around um, taking a very rigorous academic approach, if you will. One of the things we've tried to do at Vanguard is take really complicated ideas and then bring them to the masses. So indexing certainly fit that bill. Mm-hmm. But even the way we run active, you know, we, sub, we use sub-advisors from all around the world. That was very much the way pension funds and foundations and endowments worked. Early on in the mutual fund business, everybody's active teams were all in-house. So we were really the only guys doing this. And again, the, the Charlies and the Berts were very influential in helping us think that through.
1: How do you go about finding these outside teams to manage a chunk of money?
0: So we have have a really deep team um, who've grown up doing this and uh, they have a very rigorous process and they actually today travel the world looking for talent. And so we've got firms all around the world, um, uh, I think 30 plus firms now
1: managing about 75 mandates for us. So let me um, shift gears a little bit on you. You recently had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that I thought was very interesting. And there were really two parts that leapt out. The first was the SIFI issue. That's systemically important financial institutions. Do we really think mutual fund companies are going to end up being SIFIs? I mean, $50 billion is a De minimis cutoff, that is not a, a lot of money these days.
0: So um, the short answer is you would not think it would be logical um, because funds are, first of all, it's an agency-based business model, not a mm-hmm. proprietary-based business model. Um, second, because of the, the um, prohibitions against leverage, there's no leverage in funds.
1: So so how can this be so systemically <laughs> important if you're not leveraged up, you're not trading derivatives, you're not, you would think it would be... Of all the pushback against Dodd-Frank, you would think this is the easiest thing in the universe to carve out an exception for. No leverage, no heavy derivative usage, no... I mean, there was an article in the Times the other day about how many mutual funds are loading up on these pre-public companies, and there's a risk because so many of those go, but if those go belly up, there's no subsequent... Domino effect. It's and not it's, like subprime housing, right. and it's not a.
0: Again, there's idiosyncratic risk there, which you, you shouldn't be trying to prevent because without risk, there's no return. Mm-hmm. But it's not systemic. Um, the reason I wrote the op-ed and the timing of it was um, the FSB in in the in Europe and okay. uh, the UK has is, issued its second consultation, and there was a huge emphasis that big is bad, and mm-hmm. if funds are big or fund families are big then they should be deemed systemically important. And the consequences of being systemically important, as I, as I pointed out in the editorial, are very asymmetric. If you're a shareholder of a fund that's designated as a SIFI, you're gonna, not gonna get any benefit from that. Right. But you potentially could be p- charged higher fees, you could be providing capital to bail out too big to fail firms.
1: If one of the competitors of yours uses leverage, engages in risk, and collapses, Somehow, it's Vanguard investors' responsibility to- Let, Let's make it even simpler. Um, we
0: already have um, Citigroup. I, I don't want to pick on City, but City's is a systemically important mm-hmm. institution.
1: If Citigroup, for whatever reason, failed- For the fourth time, fifth time, how many times but, have they been insolvent? But if, I could say that you can't, but if, let's if, look at the history of Citigroup. If, if City
0: fails <laughs> under, this, under Dodd-Frank, all SIFIs will be required to help out. So if if you're in the, forget it's Vanguard, any large fund that's been Mm -hmm. designated systemically important, you're potentially on the hook for that. That does not seem right to us because Mm -hmm. if your fund goes down, we're certainly not going to get a capital injection from the banking system to make it up because that's the risk you're bearing in the fund. So it just, it it, it seems completely irrational to us. So what we think, and again, I think is, you know, at Vanguard, you know, um, I I did get a couple of, I've got a a lot of fan mail on this. I've gotten a few people saying, you know, this is not Vanguard. You guys are never anti-regulation. And I'm like, we're not anti-regulation. Actually, we-
1: Anti-dumb regulation.
0: Well, we want effective regulation and, and where the concentration should be are, what activities, what practices are in play that actually could lead to a systemic issue? And so those are the sorts of things that we'd like to see FSOC focused on. So you, you mentioned earlier, you know, companies, you know, funds that are buying a lot of illiquid securities. All right. I think it's perfectly legitimate for FSOC to look at that and say, is that activity going to create systemic risk? Now, we could have a debate about that but it's a it's a very fair question mm-hmm. and if the answer is yes then okay then you got to you either you know give them the opportunity to de-risk or designate them but if the answer is no then you move on but it's certainly a good line of question but just because a fund's big right. doesn't mean, mean it should be automatically systemically important. You
1: get the sense they don't understand what different companies do in different right. roles. Now, if you guys suddenly set up, all right, here's our new structured products division, and here's our new leveraged derivatives division, and here's our liquid alts division,
0: that's a different story. But And if we were doing proprietary trading for our own behalf, absolutely,
1: mm-hmm. that would be a completely different story. And now the other half of that which I'm not sure exactly where you fall on, is the money market funds. And I always scratched my head and wondered, why does the taxpayer have to backstop money market funds? These are risk instruments. Hey, if you want to buy something that's risk-free, there are lots of short-term notes you can do. But this is going to generate a yield that's above risk-free return. Therefore, you're assuming some risk.
0: So, look, the way I look at uh, money funds is money funds were essentially a convenience. If you look at um, a a very short-term, a very short-duration portfolio, the price fluctuates, you know, 0.999 to Mm 1.001 and, you know, uh, under lots of different circumstances. And so the idea of keeping a constant NAV was a convenience that allowed people to use it for transactional purposes. Now what happened over time, and, and, and this is this is a very fair criticism of the fund industry, is that simple product evolved into something different, especially on the institutional side. Mm-hmm. It became much more of a cash management vehicle. And what you saw were, you know, multiple NAVs being struck during the day and so forth and, and lots of interesting things being done where it really was away from the original spirit of the product. So um, the way the SEC reforms ended up, we were actually we actually thought it was a pretty balanced approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there were you know first of all, lots of tightening of um, you know in, uh, potential you know what can be in, in in a portfolio and so forth and durations and, and whatnot. But very importantly, um, institutional funds, institutional prime funds are actually no longer constant NAV um because of their because of the, their nature in other
1: words for for people who may not be familiar with money market funds this used to always report as one dollar right even if it was worth a little over or a little less so there was never any concern so when
0: you wrote a check you, you didn't have a taxable event was you know from a convenience standpoint mm-hmm. that's what it was all about Now, during the crisis, um, the reserve fund, which broke the buck, had a pretty big concentration of institutional investors. And the other funds that were under duress um, were all institutionally oriented. Now, you mentioned the taxpayer element, you know, when the treasury came in and put the guarantee on, to be fair, nobody asked for that. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was just sort of imposed and
1: you didn't really have a lot of choice. But there was a deep, Sigh of relief after they did that.
0: So yeah, for better or worse, yeah, for, I wasn't a uh, fan uh, of it. Uh, but uh, everybody kind uh, of unclenched a little bit. Look, I went out and talked to hundreds of clients afterwards, and they they did. And you know, for us, um, you know, I kind of always knew this would circle back, though, because um, our prime fund at that point was sixty five percent government and Treasury so unless the US government defaulted that prime fund could have withstood anything
1: so shouldn't you guys have been more rewarded by client flows and the people who were more reckless or less astute is really the right word should shouldn't the marketplace have been allowed to separate winners or losers or was this systemically important I, I think
0: it was really, you know, it's one of those we'll never really know. Um, you know, I'm a markets-based person. I I like to let the market shake out. Look, the short-term, the short-term markets were in turmoil. Um, and, you know, certainly the breaking of the buck by the Reserve Fund contributed to that. Mm-hmm. But um, you remember, AAA companies were having a hard time rolling over their yeah. commercial paper. There was so much uncertainty as to what was going to be allowed and what wasn't not going to be allowed it, it's really tough to go back and say well you know this would have happened if only these things had been done or this would have happened if only these things had been done i'm not sure we'll ever really know um i think i think the regulators did the best they could with the information that they had at the time
1: we, we need to run a series of controlled experiments yeah yeah in one universe we allow citigroup to go under and in another universe we save Lehman and then we run these simulations and see what happens. Unfortunately, we, we didn't get a chance to do that. Let, let's stick with regulation a little bit. I have two related questions. First, what, what should the SEC be doing better? What does good financial regulation look like?
0: Yeah, so I, I think the SEC um, has been moving in a, in, in a very constructive um, direction. I think Mary Jo White, has put some real, um, you know, clear markers in the sand around what her priorities are. And I think she's done a pretty good job. Um, You know, she's tough. I mean, she's... That's her reputation. She was a prosecutor prosecutor in the Southern District for for a long time. She's very tough, but I think she's very fair. She's, you know, incredibly um, open to getting feedback and she, you know, she really processes it very quickly. I, I think what the SEC is trying to do in terms of gathering, um, doing a better job gathering data um, so that they really have a better view into what's happening in the markets is a really good thing. And a lot of it, you know, the fund industry, um, we're the most transparent. There's all this <laughs> money outside the fund industry right. that they need to get their handle or hands around what's actually happening. And I think they're actually trying to move in that direction. So to me, that's a top priority.
1: When you say outside the fund industry, private equity, hedge funds? Hedge
0: funds, private equity, um, but separate accounts. I mean, you know, there's there's more money in separate separately managed accounts on the institutional side than there is in mutual funds.
1: Oh, really? And That's a it, big
0: number. It's a huge number. And so um, they're trying to get their handle on all of that so that they can really appropriately assess, you know, wh- where are their risks uh, and so forth. I think um, they need to, uh, there, there's still some opportunity for um, harmonization with the other agencies. I mean, it's it's pretty complicated to figure out who's in charge of what, you know, between the CFTC, the SEC, now the DOL and on certain Let, issues.
1: Let's it's talk just, about the DOL because yeah. that's a fascinating conversation. Right. Um, so after the financial crisis, part of Dodd-Frank more or less directed the SEC to review some of the issues that involved brokers, advisors, RAs, et cetera. And I think it was 2012, the SEC comes out with a report that said, we think the fiduciary standard, which is quote unquote, whatever's in the client's best interest, is really the appropriate standard for everybody and let's enforce this uniformly. And it never made it out of committee. It three to two, it lost. But then the Department of Labor kind of said, okay, we'll pick this up back door and pretty much mandated that 401k management and my wife has a 403b, which is PS, mostly Vanguard, um, essentially said this new fiduciary or not so new fiduciary standard is now the new standard for anybody who's advising on these retirement accounts, which are really under the purview of salary, not outside yep. investing, and that's why it's our purview, not the right. SEC. So that's a long-winded yep. wind-up for a question, but where is Vanguard on the issue of fiduciary versus suitability? So at, at the highest level, um, we're actually
0: comfortable with the, the raising the, the fiduciary standard. I think, as with all new regulation, the devil's going to be in the details. Mm-hmm. And you know, when the DOL actually tried to do this a couple years ago, as you may recall, and ran into sort of a hornet's nest because under ERISA, there's some really technical in the weeds yes. um, issues around prohibited transactions. And basically, if you were a 401k provider, you would have been prohibited from doing certain really basic things for your investors. Such as? Um, potentially you know, giving guidance around rebalancing a portfolio. Really? Um, huh. And I don't think that was the intent. And so, what would you do? You'd have to bring in a third party to to you know be independent. That's that great. Would,
1: More costs, layer another layer of ex- fees. Exactly. So so
0: it was it was actually counter to what the original intent. So they you know they step back. The new rule is out. Um, you know the proposal is out, and people are studying. It. It's four hundred pages. So we're sort of working our way through it as we speak, actually, right now. So I can't give you a definitive. Do they have it right? I'm pretty sure they've thought about the prohibited transaction elements um, in 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 the in the rules as we go forward. Hopefully, they've got that right because that's going to be an important for us. That's really important um, at the highest level. You know, uh, you know, uh, higher fiduciary standards for people handling money makes
1: a lot of sense. You you would think there was some issues that the uh, target date funds somebody had suggested essentially came about as a solution to some of the 401k rules. You, you guys are pretty substantial footprint in target date funds. We haven't really gotten to that. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Who is that appropriate for? What's the thinking behind these? I've read some criticisms of target date funds, about half of which the criticism is on costs. Yep. So I, I know who I'm speaking with. And the other half is they have a tendency to be a little too conservative given modern lifespans. Yeah. So a couple things. The, the target date funds really
0: came about um, you know, after, when the Pension Protection Act was passed in 2007, one of the things it allowed, it, it made very clear that you could have a default option that was a more balanced approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of gave regulatory permission for something a lot of for, forward-thinking companies had already been doing.
1: You, you guys, also, and it may even be closed. Didn't you have a just a basic sixty forty portfolio? So we do, and we as st-
0: one, one, one fund turnkey ba- balance decision. index. Um, people still use it.
1: Is it closed or no, is it? It's still open. It's, oh, still what's open. the name of it? Balance index fund. Okay, and that's but perfectly fine perf- as a default. It,
0: it, it's it's a perfectly good default. The the you know er, in the early days of target date funds, what was really fascinating is um, people. Said gee, it's too simplistic. You know, you're only looking at age, and you know, you and I are. You're younger than I am, but we're we're in the same band. Mm -hmm. So you may have a much different risk tolerance than I do. And does that mean we should be in different portfolios? And, And the short answer that is, of course, it does. But when you think about target date funds were designed for people who did not want to make a decision, Mm -hmm. nor uh, often they weren't making a a decision. So their money was going into a money market fund where they were earning almost nothing, certainly no no real return. And so the idea was, you know, could you put together a professionally managed balanced fund that would rebalance periodically that was age appropriate, um, given somebody's, you know, a traditional lifespan. And Um, you know, what we've done is we've got pretty sophisticated global asset allocation portfolio for people, very low cost, periodically rebalances. um, And, you know, if somebody wants to talk about their risk tolerance and wants to get into more subtleties, we've got a million different options that we can give them and we we can help them with that. But for the person who's like, I don't know what to do, Tell me your. Tell me when you want to retire. Put your money in that fund, and, and you're. That. And and I'll I'll tell you, Barry. If you look at the performance of these things over a long period of time, it's 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 really solid. Very difficult, um, actually, for you know any active managers to beat. And it's a. Um, it, it's one of those things you will always be happy that you put an investor there.
1: So that that's kind of interesting. And that, it's very global, by the way. That that was one of the questions that seems to come out of the fiduciary right. discussion cuz somehow the i don't know if i'm i'm getting this right there was an issue of well if you impose this fiduciary obligation on brokers or other advisors they won't be able to do this and i, I didn't really understand. the arguments against the fiduciary standard none of them have been and i full disclosure we're fiduciaries right. we we play in that sandbox right. so i'm i'm completely biased i'm not right. pretending right. to be objective But every time I see an argument against it, it they just seem to be really working hard to, you know, it's zero inches in a cloud of dust. It doesn't seem like they're very persuasive. I
0: I think the fear, um, especially in in some of the smaller plan market and where which are sold through uh, many of which are sold through advisors and for smaller investors, that this will. you'll move away from any kind of transaction based and you know, fee based for real little investors can be more expensive sometimes than transaction based. I think, you know, there's a way, you know, people need to think about their costs anyway. So but that's the argument that you hear some people All right,
1: make. That that works. Um I love this quote of yours. I wanna talk about a little bit. Looking at investments in less than a five to ten year window is time wasted. I know I'm changing gears on you. Yeah but let's talk about that concept of this is for the long term
0: yeah I look I you know I really I really believe that um, actually one of the things I enjoy reading the most of yours is your commentary around short-term predictions and I think you <laughs> and I are aligned on this yes, that very you much know, so. you, you read you read these predictions for the year and you might as well just throw darts And unfortunately, people do pay attention to them and they actually occasionally invest at least on the margin based on them. And I think they're making a huge mistake. And so we really want people thinking out, you know, I I say five to 10, but 10, you know, people should be thinking in 10-year increments um, around their uh, portfolios because – it's really difficult to have any sense in the short run what's going to happen. You know the new It's York, pretty
1: random. I mean, if you is, believe Burton Burton Malkiel has a clue what he's talking about, it's a fairly random walk, isn't it?
0: You probably remember the article, but I think it was maybe a decade or more ago the New York Times ran a piece where they looked at 20-year returns and they compared treasury, you know, treasury bonds to equities. And I think if I have the stat right if you took the 10 best days out of a 20 year period, your equity return dropped from roughly 10% down to the level of a treasury bond. Wow! And so that whole risk premium, if you will, that you were being paid was earned in 10 days. Now you and I know it's not quite that simple, mm-hmm. but I think the message was, are you that good? That you're gonna, you're gonna be in those 10 days. And my view is nobody's that good.
1: And if you look at the distribution of those 10 days, they tend to come near some of the worst days. Right. So if you're stepping aside to miss those worst days, right. you're also missing some of the, the right. best days. That's
0: actually a great point and when I hadn't even thought of, but you're absolutely right when I think about that, what the periods are. And so, again, our view is, you know— really be be very long-term oriented in what you're doing and that's actually what gives the ability for you know in obviously this sounds like i'm talking you know vanguard's book if you will but you know low cost the low cost advantage it's it's that compounding effect over a decade that really shows up you know that you know when you look at say active versus passive as the extreme examples of low-cost investing um, you know, a year to year can be, you know, half of your active funds. Some, some years will beat your passive funds. Mm-hmm. But when you look over 10-year period, it's consistently, you know, less than 20%. And that's that compounding cost differential over, you know, a long period of time.
1: You, you guys have a research piece, which um, I mentioned Jay had, had forwarded. Jay Tinney is the person for Vanguard who, I shouldn't say covers us. We just know him personally, and he's a, a great guy. But he sent this research piece and showed the difference between low fee and high fee over 30 years. And if I'm doing the math right, at the end of the period, especially 30, if you're looking at three decades, the return difference is is an order of magnitude. It's just a tremendous impact. And think about what 1% compounded for 30 years is going to do to uh any sort of portfolio so i'll give you an
0: example so I, I just did this for somebody where we looked at sort of a high cost versus low cost sort of total cost of investing if you will um, so looking at a place where they were getting advice and whatnot the um the difference in the ending balances um translated into a 40 percent difference in income That's amazing. so you know basically imagine your your standard of living up or down 40 percent based on, on on this effect
1: that that's a meaningful that's a meaningful swing um, let's talk about valuation so you guys if you're thinking long term I keep hearing from people and reading stocks are high bonds are high everything's high expect low returns going forward which is sort of a prediction some people say it's really just basic math but To me, it looks like a prediction that the economy isn't going to accelerate, that earnings aren't going to normalize, that we're not going to eventually come out of this deleveraging period of which we're still, you know, I think the U.S. population has deleveraged about 25% Mm. of their excess pre-crisis debt, so we could still only be halfway through the healing process. What what's your perspective, evaluation, and and what does it mean to forward expected returns? So I, I'll give you
0: I'll, I'll give you all the appropriate caveats. So one, you know, we're living in a period like none we've ever lived. We've never seen the Fed do what it's done the last six years, and if you put the pre-crisis easy money period on top of that, you know, we've lived in a decade of a decade of very easy money. I don't know how to think about that, to be perfectly honest. I've kill myself thinking about it all the time and I don't know when it ends and how it ends. Um so l- let me make I'll, the... I'll
1: I'll send you an email afterwards. Yeah. I'll explain it all to you. Which I'm I'm <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll that would be good cuz nobody it, knows this it, is it, clearly you're you're nailing it, it worries me a lot. This is clearly uncharted territory. I know you could people have made the argument, you know, you look from 1930 to 1950 rates were low. But you can't say they were at zero right. for six years, right. and and there wasn't QE right. back then. Right. Clearly, this is right. uncharted territory. I mean, if you think, if, I mean, again, I'm going to oversimplify
0: it, but if you think about it, um, short term, you know, a money fund should be yielding about two percent. That's what inflation is historically. Mm-hmm. The money markets um, produce roughly inflation, um, no real return. And so we've gone through a period, a, a distortion in the markets for this prolonged period of time, where we're essentially the short end were producing negative real returns. Um, we've never lived through that. And typically, um, when you study history, the longer something's distorted, mm-hmm. the less predictable and the and the harsher the outcome is. So that's my big long-winded caveat. Um, Not we, much of a caveat. That's... we 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 look at. So we look at. Um, You know if you look at let's say 10 years if you look at yield to maturity on a bond it's your best predictor of annual returns Mm -hmm. um you know plus or minus 50 basis points typically so yield to maturity on corporate bonds is less than three right now or right around let's say three just around the numbers so that's our best guess as to what bonds are going to return over the next decade i can dream up a scenario where it's worse i can dream up a scenario where it's better not many that it's better um but if you do sort of a we do a dis we sort of a distribution of returns the in the square you know the bulk of the distribution if you will is in around that three percent number uh, for a corporate bond if you look at equities you know we're at a pretty high valuation place um probably top decile historically Mm -hmm. and again when we run we so we run a capital markets model which you know basically runs a monte carlo simulation um, and when historically, when markets have been valued this way, the central tendency would be to be a couple hundred basis points below long term average. And so that would typically, you know, and again, it's a much flatter distribution with much longer tails, mm-hmm. but the central tendency is in the six to eight range. And so we've actually been That's not horrible. No, it's not. Um, considering and considering
1: what we've lived through, right. all things, if that's future returns. Right. There's certainly worse scenarios there, there, out there.
0: So yeah, uh, you and I could both dream up a lot of worse ones, and we can certainly what could lead to them. And you can you can dream up a few better. Um, you know, you mentioned um, some things that could accelerate earnings and whatnot. But if you look at if you look at that, what it says is a sixty forty portfolio is probably going to be in the five mm-hmm. five fifty. So three fifty real, let's say just for um, uh, estimates. That's on the low end of you. Sure. R- you know. But it's not crazy. And so, what we've been doing is we've been pretty vocal about this um, because, again, to me, it's an asymmetric risk for an investor. If we're wrong, if we're wrong on the, if we're too high, then it's going to be a really rough ride. If we're too low, then great. You know, everybody will be happy at the end. Although there'll be some inflation. There'll be some inflation. What, um, the the real message is especially for people who are in the bulk of their their earning years and in their savings years is don't expect the markets to bail you out over the next decade you need to be saving at a higher rate than you are and you know for Well that's
1: always one of the inputs whenever we whenever right. our CFPs run a scenario with people it's you have to either plan on spending less when you retire right. or working longer, longer right or saving more; those are the three. Which, the, which is your first choice? And there, and
0: there are no, there, there are no other levers. And so, what you got to, what you have to, you know, I think it's a very much incumbent on us as professionals to make that case to people. Um, and it's hard, you know, it's not sexy, it's not necessarily a fun message. But the flip side is, um,
1: it's the responsible thing to do. And Charlie Ellis's most recent book, right. Um, which is on my, it's literally sitting on my night table, that's the next book I'm reviewing, basically describes, hey, here's a situation and we have a potential problem down the road if we don't take steps immediately to fix it.
0: You just summarize the book perfectly <laughs> in your three tables. I'm only, I'm yeah, only three yeah. chapters uh, into you're it. Lo- you got the levers. That's it. I mean, that's the book. I had that. Uh, you know, Charlie was kind enough to send me the book early and uh, I had a chance to review it and it's exactly his message. and look, it's the it, it it is what it is. and you know it's up to us, I think, to really make that case. you know, look, um I'll say something it'll sound sacrilegious and it's not meant to, but you know if I go back to ninety eight ninety nine mm-hmm. um and do I have any regrets? And one of them is, um you know we didn't have the sophistication around our capital markets model. We you know we weren't doing all these Monte Carlo simulations and predicting future returns and so forth. But you knew in ninety nine. That the next decade couldn't be great. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just knew. I mean, when stock, when PEs were where they were, when earning, you know, however you want to measure valuation, and I wish we as an industry had done a better job telling people that. And you know, there were people out there who were saying it, but it wasn't the strong voice and. Um, you know, to me, uh, I, I, I certainly don't want to go through that again. I don't think we're in that territory, by the way. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, um, we're, we're we're farther along.
1: Let, let me also point out that, and so I began as a trader in the 1990s, and there was no frame of reference for anybody who was buying stocks, actively right. trading, playing the dot-com game. Think about it. You, you had even 1987... You know, uh, people kind of blanched, I'm guilty of it also, when Ronald Reagan came out and said, hey, this is just a correction, people snickered. He turned out to be right. It was just, everyone forgets, 87 finished the year up 1%. So that, I don't even want to call it a flash crash, that major structural plumbing snafu, there was no frame of reference for what would happen in 2000. Maybe seventy three, seventy four. Right. But how? I know that because I'm become. I've made myself right. a student of market history right. after all these years. But back then, I had right. no idea what so nineteen seventy three was. So,
0: so you're absolutely right. And seventy three, seventy four is the closest. And you know, you, you asked it in an earlier question. You know, who were some of my the people who mm-hmm. influenced me? Well, they all lived through that, so I got to hear their stories. And so, even though I was a teenager in seventy, I, I remember sitting in gas lines for my dad to. It oh, was, sure, was the trade off seventy four. Absolutely, yeah. I got to I got to use the car if in, I sat in the line. That's right, even an odd. You know, it was um, each day one each day, day was yeah, even right, but um, so I was vaguely aware how bad it was out there. But you know, we didn't live through it as professionals, and so but some of my early mentors did, and so you you look at that and you say, okay, what can I learn from them and yeah, so now I think going forward, I, I'm hoping we're going to do a much better job of this.
1: So, so let me ask a somewhat related question, because um, I've asked similar questions to people who did live through the early part of of the '80s and as as professionals. So here we are, we're six years into this bull market, we're up two hundred plus percent, and there's still an awful lot of skepticism. The fact that we're talking about hey, let's lower our expectation for future returns. You know, I tell some of the younger guys who weren't on trading or, or managing money in 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, uh, you think this is euphoric. There's no euphoria right. now compared to then. It, it's for every bull. There's a bear and sometimes right. two. So the question is six years into this bull market, plus 200%, which is a heck of a return. Why no euphoria yet? Is it still... Post financial crisis uh, so I, trauma. I, I think you know if you think about the
0: last 15 years, we've had two really bad t- markets, right? You have the dot com crash, and mm-hmm. then you have the GFC, and then on top of that, you have the housing collapse right in the middle. Right in the middle. So uh, you know, to me, I, I I think the I do think the GFC, it, it certainly didn't have the impact that the depression had on my parents. Uh, my parents were born right in the middle of the depression and, you know, have great stories to tell about growing up then. But this is pretty close, you know, in terms of, I think, a psychic impact on people. It was, you know, for people who um, had been saving their whole life, it was a pretty scary moment. And you've certainly seen, you know, some change in behavior as a result. So um, I I think that partly explains the lack of euphoria. Mm -hmm. Um, But look, you know, I, I think... Despite the fact that I don't think the next 10 years the markets are going to be as robust as certainly they've been the last five. They by almost definition they can't be, it's still really important to keep investing. It's still really important to, to have that diversified portfolio. And so I think actually that's going to be one of our challenges is to keep people, you know you're, you're putting out this message that's not all that, you know, um, optimistic, but at the same time, don't try to time it, don't try to avoid right. it try to keep investing on a regular basis. If anything, try to save a little bit more.
1: The um, interesting thing is some of the folks we've had through here, like Jeff Soud of Raymond James and Laszlo Barini and um, Ralph Acampora, who were all active money managers or strategists in the early 80s, have made the case that the first five years of this bull market were not unlike 82 to 87, when there was a tremendous amount of skepticism You had the 87 crash, and everybody came out and said, told you so, and the markets sort of gathered themselves up, and the next decade wasn't too shabby. Right. So so we theoretically, I wonder if we're potentially in that sort of uh, secular market, if that's what's developing here.
0: So, you know, look, we'd all love it if that were the case. Um, I guess- I don't quite yet see the um, what's going to accelerate earnings to the level that you would need to see earnings accelerate to sort of make the valuations make sense which you saw I mean in the beginning of that period you certainly saw earnings growing at tremendous rates and then obviously valuations got you know mm-hmm. kind of crazy toward the end but if you even if you back out the last couple of years Companies, you know, companies have done an awful lot to improve margins over the last decade. They, you know, they've they've been very conservative, and in fact, one could argue in some cases they may have even underinvested in in, in the future. But what we don't um, top line growth is getting tougher to come by, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately, you need top line growth. And so, I'm again, I'm I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I just don't know on that score whether we'll see sort of a revitalization of top-line growth that leads to you know, really sustained earnings growth over the next five, six years, which would make the case that you described
1: come true. So let's talk a little bit about um, investors today. What are they doing right? What are they doing wrong?
0: So look, I think um, at the highest level, we're seeing better behavior um, in, in um, two things. One, they're paying a lot more attention to costs. And again, I know that sounds self-serving, but you know, the results have actually borne it out um, from an, a return standpoint. So um, there's certainly been much more attention to that. Two, again, during the crisis, we didn't see um, you know, a, a big uptick in transaction volume. In fact, we actually saw a, a decline in transaction volume, and people actually stayed the course.
1: Which is amazing because most shops did not experience that. So, you know, we were we were pleased to see
0: that. And, and again, I think as a result, people um, benefited from that. You know, your, the, the, the advent of target date funds, which we talked about a little bit earlier, um, it's amazing how much money is going into those in the 401k system really? right now. Um, is
1: that because they've become a default if the, somebody doesn't select a different portfolio? The, the
0: default certainly explains some of it, but we've seen people make... Wholesale changes to really encourage their their folks to go into it. Um, as much as fifty percent of the cash flow going into our four hundred and one k system, and we have four million people on our record keeping system, so mm-hmm. we get to watch this closely. Is going into target funds, and so that's amazing. Yeah, and and we feel great about that because it's highly diversified. You know, very global, mm-hmm. um, very balanced, and you know, you can argue on the margins, but it's a really good. Um, solution for most people. So I think actually investors are m- more well diversified, probably even more than they know in some cases, um, and that's going to really stand them in good stead over the next decade. So what aren't they doing as well? Um, I think uh, the savings rates I've already mentioned, you know, if you look at the average in the 401k system as a proxy, um, they're not where they need to be. Um, I think the average large plan, it's about 10%. The number needs to be more like 12 or 15 so uh, that's one. Two, I do think people still on the margin pay too much attention to macroeconomic factors.
1: Well, it makes for a fascinating conversation, it, it, and it
0: is. And and you know, it's one of the things that we found as a provider is we need to put more macroeconomic information out on our website and arm our reps with that and so forth. But at the same time, we're telling people, despite all this really interesting stuff, don't act on it.
1: Well, we, we call those folks macro tourists. Yeah. The hedge funds that suddenly, all right, now I'm an expert on the Ukraine right. and I'm short XYZ. And those funds have all gotten shellacked over right. the past couple of right. years. Very it's, difficult
0: to do, as you know. And and again, um, I'm not going to, there are firms out there who've made a, you know, they this is all they do. But for the average investor, it's really tough. But I, I'll give you an interesting example. Um, uh, just this is an anecdote. About a year and a half ago, I did a day on Facebook and Twitter uh, for Vanguard, mm-hmm. you know, the Vanguard accounts. And I got more macro questions than anything else. And that was very different than what I used to experience answering phones and so forth. And you
1: wait, you answer phones at? at yeah, we, we all you'll like, do a day where you're yeah, in where the you, help center.
0: Yeah, where you want to, so you want to hear what investors are saying and what they're thinking and um, see what our people are going through as well.
1: Have you ever done a Reddit ask me anything?
0: Um well basically on the uh Twitter and uh, Facebook it was and mm-hmm. I got asked all kinds of stuff you know from
1: you, you should you should tag Reddit cuz that's a unique okay, community gonna, it's gonna... a little it's a little different than Twitter or Facebook because there are these subcommunities yep. and their investing group is absolutely robust and articulate and informed and they'll give you questions that I'm lobbing your softballs compared yeah. to what they're going to throw at. No, that'll
0: be, that'll be great. Actually, we like doing that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what was interesting is we got so many macro questions that, you know, we went back and said, gee, we're not putting enough information out there.
1: Yeah, but people are hearing a lot of it. And look, let's be honest, the newspapers, the right, magazines, right. the television stations, they got a lot of column inches and a lot of time to fill. I have this argument all the time with people Hey, how did the sequester affect your your portfolio? No impact. Right. What's the GDP of Ukraine? It's about a year's GDP of Ukraine is about two days, a day and a half of U.S. GDP. And every time, oh, what's going on with the Israelis right. and the Syrians? Every time one of these things come up, not to be look, there's real human tragedy involved in all these stories, right, right. and I'm not I'm not downgrading or ignoring that. But from a portfolio manager's perspective, the question is always. What is this going to do to global economic activity? How is this going to impact so, revenues right so I so first of all, I couldn't agree with you more and
0: and I actually think that's the education that has to take place. So when I said we were getting more inquiries around it um, what we've tried to do with it is put out the information with a and here's what it means and here's what it doesn't mean. And generally it's don't let it change your portfolio allocation at all, which is you know sort of your basic message.
1: You know, Art Cashin tells this delightful story. He's been on the floor of the New York Exchange for 50 years. And he tells the story about, back then, supposedly the specialists all got the inside dope. They got the real story. And and a rumor circulated that the Russians had hit the button, the the Soviets, and that the nukes were on the way and we all had eight minutes to, to live. So Art runs around and tries to get a short off to sell into the nuclear Armageddon. And he go, couldn't get it executed, and he comes to his boss and says, I tried to short the market in, in light of the rumor. I couldn't get it done. And the boss says, Art, when we find out the nukes are coming, you want to take the other side of that trade. You want to get long. Why do I want to get long? Because if the nuke hits, who cares? But if the rumor turns out not to be true, we're long, and the market comes snapping back. And- that just goes to show you how ridiculous those that's macro a, trades great, are that's a great story I, ha, you know yeah. how is anybody going to trade on any of this but. stuff you know it's been a somebody puts this out i can't remember who it is I'll, I'll i'll dig it up and send it to you where they have this chart of the past 50 years and every year, there's a balloon as to what right. the macro disaster to, of that year is going to be. And every year, the market kind of shrugs it off and keeps right. going. It's almost like just an annoying distraction with no impact on portfolios.
0: Yeah. We've actually, there's a great research paper out on our website that looks at macro economic data and essentially GDP growth and market returns, as you know, are. There's almost no correlation in the
1: short run. Certainly not in real time. You yeah, you're yeah, not gonna see yeah. it. Over the long haul very, if the GDP very is, is long growing, right. markets should be growing if a right. GDP stops growing, right. like we've seen in but, some countries. But you know,
0: one of the one of the great one of the one of the great statistics that's out there, if you if you went back to um late eighteen hundreds, so eighteen nineties, so what was the number one economy it was the UK and US close on its heels, and then subsequent hundred years, obviously the US economy grew at I think twice the rate of the UK economy, and so the trick question is: what were the returns in the equity markets? I think they're almost identical. To yeah, they're very a, similar within a tenth of, within a tenth of a percentage point.
1: So much for GDP.
0: Well, and you sort of you sort of peel the onion one level, and it's like, well, really smart UK companies made their money in the US. Of course, they became global. <laughs> they and, became and global. That, that makes a lot and, of sense. Yeah.
1: So let's talk a little bit about active management because that's an active management question. So everybody knows Vanguard for indexing, but we mentioned a third of your yep. funds are active. And the key question is not only active, but very successful track records. Mm-hmm. So A, why has Vanguard active funds been so successful? And I think I know what your answer is going to be, but so what think, makes what makes yeah. your active better than the average active?
0: So I, I think there are... Um, two big factors. One is we run our active funds at a lower cost than everybody. That's a huge, huge, it's a huge drag. It's a huge advantage. You're eliminating them.
1: that drag right. from, from active.
0: Second, um, we didn't think we could attract all the best active talent to Malvern, Pennsylvania, as bucolic and beautiful as it is. And so for all of our active equity funds, we actually travel the world and look for the best sub-advisor. So much like a foundation or an endowment would do, if you're looking for a large cap growth manager, Who's the best large cap growth manager you can find? So we go and we we have a team that does nothing than but that. And we, so
1: so how do you set these guys up? It's it's they're in London or they're in Hong Kong or they're in Los Angeles or San Francisco. When you basically say you're going to run your fund out of the Vanguard San Francisco office? No,
0: so you're going to run your fund. We're we're going to you know we're going to do all the back office, all the administration. You're going to just manage money, and um, you know they'll transmit. Um, Data to the custodian and so forth, you know, or, you know, they'll do their own trading and so forth, but it'll be a Vanguard fund and we'll be the distributor. And basically our premise is if you do a really good job over the long run, our clients are really smart. They'll probably invest more with you. And so, you know, the outside managers love it because they don't have to do any service. They don't have to do any marketing, any sales. All they do is run money. Mm -hmm. We're like, they, most of them tell us we're their best institutional account.
1: Huh, that's really fascinating. And so what's the team like that goes out looking for these people?
0: So it's, a, it's an experienced group, um, typically um, all, you know, mostly all CFAs at this point. Um, a, a number of them have actually worked um, before they came to Vanguard. They might have been working for a consultant. So, you know, an NS Knup, for example, or somebody like that who's, you know, really good at manager selection. A lot of them have been homegrown, though, but Mm -hmm. um, really highly trained. And um, we just put a lot of time and energy in. And again, this may surprise you, but um, so we have 31 firms. They run about 75 mandates for us. Um, And there's a small group of um, our executive team, a subset of my executive team, but this includes me along with the, the senior members of this portfolio review department that I just described we'll do 100 manager meetings on campus a year um, at a minimum. So these firms will come and spend an hour hour with uh, me and my team and then half a day with the broader portfolio review group, and we'll put them through their paces. And, of course, we'll do things in their office as well, but we bring them in formally every year. And then, of course, they're in front of our board um, on a rotating basis as well. So there's a ton of rigor that goes on, and it's very senior management, a lot of senior management time. And I've I've even had a couple of my directors say to me, gosh, you guys spend an awful lot of time on it. I said, this is what we do. I mean, this is the most important thing we do on the active side is select managers. And Mm -hmm. so we invest— And you're
1: not selecting emerging managers, so to speak— these are fairly seasoned people yeah although you know we've
0: we've we have found a few firms um, in the, or in early in their in their um, existence but they generally were seasoned people who spun out mm-hmm. um, of Got bigger it. firms and you know some of our most well-known um, managers actually started that way
1: do you find active is better in less efficient markets and what I mean by less efficient emerging markets distressed small cap where right. they're there's not a lot of coverage, and there's opportunity there. Or is there something else going on in your active?
0: So um, the the short answer is we don't see you know we don't see in those quote unquote less efficient markets. Um, and I think the reason for that is costs are so much higher there that mm-hmm. you know tr- even trading costs uh, it's such a drag. You know when you look at index results versus um, small cap active, for example. It's 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 not quite the same extreme as in the large cap, but it's close. Mm-hmm. Um, but we um, the 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 things that we see are um, they're they're more soft. Uh, there's there's one quantitative thing that we see, which is for the most part they're they're much lower turnover than mm-hmm. their counterparts. They no tend, surprise. They tend to be you know very focused on that, but then the um, the other things are uh, they have great, great talent retention. They have great process for, um, they're very consistent in what they do. And they're really good at developing the next generation. Um, You know, in our business, so many firms have imploded going from first to second to third generation. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen over time is the people side is really important. And that, that is a qualitative thing, but when you you know we've got a group of people who've been doing this for a long time. You know I've been part of this um, uh, process for almost twenty five years now. Wow. So I've seen a lot. It doesn't. I, I'm going to make my share of mistakes, but I've seen a lot. And many of my peers have been involved for you know fifteen twenty years. So hopefully that experience allows you to assess the people side a little bit better.
1: So so you're looking at low turnover, good employee retention because yep. that tells you a lot. And a, su- a su- succession planning right. that seems to be well thought out. Yeah. None of those things really speak directly to so, the investing model. Yeah.
0: So, so on the investing side, what we're really looking for is an explainable process that's very consistent. And again, I'll give you, I'll oversimplify. But if if someone says I'm a bottom-up stock picker, and you know we don't think about sector allocation, we don't think about um, the benchmark at all, et cetera, et cetera. When you do a portfolio attribution analysis, and let's say they've outperformed them, outperformed um, a broad market by 200 basis points, and you see when you do the attribution analysis, there's no nothing from stock selection, and it's all from sector selection. Mm-hmm. It's all because of what sectors they were in. Mm-hmm. Well, you may, you may be happy that you have 200 basis points of outperformance, but you have it for the wrong reason. So you're, that's something that actually would raise a flag with us, is that's not what you say you do. On the other hand, if you have a manager who, um, you know, maybe their performance is only average because they've had some factor headwinds or whatever, but if they say bottom-up stock selection is really what's driving it, and you look at the portfolio attribution and you see stock selections actually added value, well, then you know that begins to reinforce what they're saying is what they're doing, mm-hmm. and then you know we really do roll up our sleeves and you know we meet with the analyst teams and we get into you know, how does a good idea get into the portfolio? How does an idea get out of the portfolio? What, you know, what what are you looking at next, et cetera, et cetera. So we actually get into a lot of the the weeds around the portfolio. But we what at the end of the day, what we really want to see is a consistency between what they say and what actually happens. So does that makes sense?
1: It makes a whole lot of sense. Um, so who are the buyers of the active side? If everybody knows you as the indexer-in-chief... Who are the ideal investor buying a Vanguard active fund? So
0: we, we see a lot of um we, we see a lot of investors on the, our retail direct side um you know the do it yourself investors who do a combination of they'll build a core portfolio around an, an index strategy and then they may add one or two or three of our active funds almost like a core satellite kind of sure. approach. Um, that's become pretty prevalent, and that's most prevalent in the retail side. The 401k side um, used to follow that trend as well, but certainly the last five years, the advent of target date funds has changed some of that. So mm-hmm. we see a little less interest there. You know, on the advisor side, you know, our financial advisors with whom we work, um, many of them employ that kind of strategy where they mix indexing and active but historically i think they've looked to us more for our indexing prowess than our active prowess
1: well it makes sense because if you're looking for low cost and that's what you want right. to that's what you want to focus on that that's where you're going to go so let's talk a little bit about i know i only have yeah, you for okay. so many to- yeah. so many minutes left and i want to get to a few of my favorite questions so since you've joined vanguard what has changed at vanguard and since you've become ceo what changes have you Implemented, so you know um, I joined in '86,
0: and um, you know obviously the biggest changes have been, um, you know, the, just the growth and scope of what the scale we do. has. The scale. It, that,
1: that's a, has to be immense to have had a front row. It, I mean, that's hard to imagine having a front row seat to when you joined. How big was Vanguard? So Vanguard
0: was um, under a thousand crew members, people. Right and um less just about twenty billion under management.
1: So you've been there from twenty billion to 3.1 billion, three point one point one trillion. 3.1 trillion. That, that's that's right. unfathomable right. of a, a growth right. thing so, to watch. So the breadth and scale of what we do is,
0: is certainly huge. Um the change in technology has been breathtaking. I mean breathtaking. You know, it, the biggest technological innovation when I joined was the eight hundred toll-free number. <laughs> And, you know, now 90% of all transactions are conducted on the web. Um, and that's then and, and, and you see people doing all this stuff with smartphones and tablets. And it's just incredible to see. So that's that's been a huge change. You know, the third change has been actually the adoption of indexing. Um, mm-hmm. So you would say, wait a minute, you invented the first index fund in 76, but we only had one index fund when I joined. We were in the process of rolling out our second one. And no one had really come to the party at that point. Um, you know, we were still primarily an active shop, and to see the adoption of indexing as a major force in the mutual fund space, um, you know, we always believed it would take hold. But I'm not sure even we saw it taking hold uh, to the level that it's that it's gone. So that that's had a, a pretty profound change. And then um, probably the the last thing. Um, and then we'll get to the second part of the question is um, the globalization. And, you know, we've globalized our investment thinking. Um, so we, you know, we we are very heartily recommending people, you know, check their home bias at the door and right. really diversify globally. And- If it, we
1: if we look at Europe and we look at emerging markets, somewhat less expensive than U.S. markets. Yeah, I, I mean- again, Yeah, much exp- Even after the most recent run-up, it, still it, cheaper it, than here. It, it's, again, it's a great case
0: for- why you wanna be globally diverse um, in your portfolio. And um, our client base is increasingly uh, becoming global. Um, you know We've got a pretty significant footprint in Australia, Hong Kong, uh, the UK, Canada. Um, you know, we serve Europe from uh, the UK. So we're seeing you know, our ability to take our story to many disparate markets. Um, and that's been pretty exciting
1: to watch. And that's really happened in the last five years. So you mentioned um, almost 90% of your transactions are digital. What are you guys doing with all that data? I would imagine that the ability to take the reams of quantitative metrics that are developed in-house just from your own client transactions and look at it geographically in the US, look at it globally, look at how people are using that, um, interacting with Vanguard, have you guys come up with some interesting ways to slice and dice that? Well, so I, I would tell you we're probably not as far along in that as you
0: would think and hope um, in some ways. Um, you know, One, you've got all the privacy issues, so you want to make sure you have your structures are, to protect privacy. But I think the big data concept that a lot of people are talking about is probably the next going to be a really important thing going forward. You know, we, we, we certainly look at all the transactional activity and and um, we it gives us a very good sense of what investors are thinking and doing. And we can watch what people do on the web so we know where they're spending time and where they're not. And that actually gives us some insights as to how investors are thinking. But um, we probably are in, you know, the second inning of that
1: game, if you will. Really? Yeah. So I think there's just an immense amount more that can be done. So, aside from big data, what do you want to accomplish as CEO of Vanguard for the next five years? And I understand if there are company secrets you you don't yeah. want to share, but you have to have a yeah. fairly public set of, uh, so, of goals. Yeah. So let me let me just
0: step back to you know coming out of the crisis, just to mm-hmm. put the context. So you know we we did a lot of work coming out of the crisis about things that we thought were going to really matter. So you know one of them was you know we thought ETFs were going to um, be a bigger part of our future, so we put a lot of emphasis there. We thought target date funds in the four hundred and one k market would be a bigger part of our future. We put a lot of emphasis there. We thought global would be a really much bigger part of what we were going to do, um, and so we put a lot of emphasis there. There were a lot of internal things that we worked on in terms of developing the next generation of leaders and so forth. And what you've seen in you know the last half a dozen years is you know obviously the ETF side has you know that's played out pretty much the way we saw it. We weren't in the we, we didn't serve people like you, financial advisors a decade mm-hmm. ago. It's a trillion dollar business today. So for, for, Vanguard, for Vanguard, it's a trillion dollars. One trillion dollars. Wow. Um, from a startup. You know, we were late in the target date fund. We're now the largest provider. We, we actually are the largest 401k manager today. You know, three quarters of a trillion dollars in, in 401k assets. So, And then our global business has gone from you know I don't know seventy or eighty billion to two hundred and fifty billion in that time frame. So all those sort of strategic pushes um, uh, have paid off to date. Um, And then we did a lot of internal things, as I said. And so going forward, um, I think the ETF phenomenon is not done. So I think ETFs um, are not only going to be front and center in the U.S. I think they're going to be more prevalent around the world, we're seeing. Um,
1: are, are they not especially prevalent overseas? Like they're, they're when indi- you look at Asia, you look at Europe, are people not buyers so, so in, of, in, of that? In,
0: in pockets of Europe they are, but um, they haven't really taken hold the way they have here. So we huh. think that's coming, and we think the indexing story broadly is coming around the world, because it's still a t- it's less than 5% of all assets under management outside the US. So I think that's a huge opportunity. Um, So the whole global, so ETFs, global, um, I think this um, intersection of robo and personal advice, we're calling our personal advisor service, is going to be a really big thing for us um, the next five years. And then I think um, maybe it it may not sound as big, there's a lot to be done on the technology front to make us even easier to deal with. And um, so some of that will be more evolutionary than revolutionary. But so much of what we did over the last decade was focused on making the PC experience better and our website's really robust, as you know. We gotta, we have to have smartphone and tablet technology that's equally robust. We're, I think we're sort of leading in that, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's anywhere near where it needs to get. So um, you should expect a, a, a lot there. And then the last thing I would say is um, we're not done on the cost side. So uh, You
1: think you can extract more costs Make things cheaper. I, I do. I so do. more Vanguard effect. You're going to raise the bar and make everybody else we, come we, to you. We 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 uh,
0: we we think we need to keep raising the bar on that because again, um, it's
1: certainly a institutional in your DNA part of part of the corporate culture. But you guys have an enormous advantage. You're so far ahead of just about everybody right. in that space. Why not press that further? Well, and you know the other—I mentioned Andy
0: Grove earlier, and this—you know—the um, uh, idea about the par- only the paranoid survive. You can't get complacent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of tough competitors out there. They're not going to just roll over and say, "Oh, Vanguard's won the game; it's over." I wish they would. Um, I'm, I'd be happy if, if, if markets this, don't uh, work that. That's way. <laughs> not the way markets work, and that's what I love about you know. I mean, so uh, you know, you have our... to
1: suit up every day. You you don't yeah. sound like a guy. Hey, we have three trillion dollars. I'm just going to kick back and. Uh... I, I, you know, we our team goes to bed every night
0: nervous about what tomorrow's going to bring, and I think it's a really healthy, um, healthy thing for us. So. You know, you can't, um, Jack Brennan, who I know you, you you spent some time on this very, you know, doing the same thing, mm-hmm. Jack had uh, his favorite saying, I think, um, was um, complacencies, the seven deadly sins all rolled into one, which oh, I think is one. a, Justice Brandeis, I think was the originator of it. And Jack used to preach that to us. And, you know, I think it's part of our DNA at this point.
1: So in the last few minutes we have before, because I know... Um, uh, your associate's going to be jumping up and down in a second. Let me let me give you my final three or four questions that I ask everybody, and I, I know this is going to be um, really interesting. First, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting out their career, whether it's in the investment business or just more broadly? So, more broadly, um, you
0: know, it's, to me, it's all about save early. You know, actually, let me back it up. Live below your means. You know, whatever you think you can afford, just notch it down a little bit. Save more than you th- you think you're going to need. So be very aggressive early. And then get exposure um, to, you know, a highly diversified portfolio. If you're young, if you're a young millennial, you should be mostly equities. Um, volatility is your friend. It's not your enemy at this point. Be very global. And, and, and then, you know, obviously, we're going to say pay a lot of attention to cost. But I would, I would really start early and try to save as much as you can early. It makes a huge difference.
1: You know, we just had this conversation the other day. I think back about my cars that I had when I was, I'm a car guy early in my career. And in hindsight, who really cares what you're driving right. when you're just starting out? You're supposed to be broke. Right, and, and, and it's just, you know, if you do it on the front
0: end, it, it, the compounding effect is just amazing. You know, for somebody coming into our business, um, I would say uh, really important to develop a global perspective. Um, I still see it; it it's it, it's getting better. And we're, home
1: country it, bias it, is everywhere. It's, it, it's it not is. just here. Right. And in the U.S., it's not as bad because the U.S. is about half right. of the global market, so it doesn't it's show little, as much. A little easier. But, but, but if you're in the U.K., where you're right. six or seven percent of the right. global markets, right. and fifty percent of your equity right. exposure is local. Right. That's a problem.
0: Right. So if you're going to be if you're going to be in our business, you've got to develop a global mindset. Two, um, you got to work really hard. Um, I think it's you know I think it's going to get even harder. And you know whether you're on the business side or the investment side, hard work really really separates people. Um, and then three, um, you know, line yourself up with uh, organizations that really uh, put integrity above all else. Um, our business. Um, you know, a lot of really good people, a lot of really good firms. But, you know, there are some stuff on the margin that you just is not good. And I think if you're young, pay a lot of attention to that early on um, and, and, you know, try to find the firm who's got a
1: value system that really
0: matches up with your own.
1: So my, my second to last question, I kind of asked you already, so I'm going to change it up. I was going to say, what has changed for better or worse since you've joined the industry? But we've really talked about that a lot. So let me Mix that up a little bit and say, "What changes would you like to see take place going forward in the industry?" So, look, I, I think
0: the industry uh, I, I, again it's not going to shock you. The 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 cost side, um, and and it's it's not just about price, by the way. It's about value. It, the industry really needs to think about what value are we providing. And um, there's there's an immediate reaction when you say low cost to you know um, people people flinch. I think the value, you know, you have to understand your value proposition, and, and I don't think everybody does that as well as they should. Um, you know, you don't have to be the low price guy all the time if you're really adding something um, that's valuable to a client at, at the end of the day. So I think people need to really understand the value side of their equations better. I'd also like to see um, uh, the industry a little bit more focused um, on the long term, um, You know, a lot of firms, despite the fact that they talk long-term from an investment perspective, they run themselves very short-term with a very short-term orientation. You know, one of the things we really pride ourselves on is trying to run ourselves the same way we tell people to invest, which was, you know, don't think in terms of quarters or even years. Think in terms of, you know, five, 10, 20-year blocks. And I think the industry is still too short-term oriented, and you see that in some of the d- discussions around regulation and things like that. You know, I think the third thing um, you know for the industry um, to real to really focus on is the people side. Um, and, and this is going to sound um, a little bit um, uh, uh, paternalistic, perhaps, but mm-hmm. you know, when I, I I talk to a lot of young professionals in the business and it's a wide distribution of experiences in terms of whether they really feel satisfied or not. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's really important that um, for, you know, you know you know, in your own work, having a purpose that matters mm-hmm. really makes coming to work every day better. I think more firms need to think about what's our real purpose, why, why do we exist, and why does somebody wanna work here? Not just for the paycheck, because the paycheck's important, but it's not, it's not actually what you're gonna remember you know, after thirty-five years, um, you know what I'll remember at Vanguard are the people and the clients and the culture, and mm-hmm. you know the compensation and all that will be nice, but that—that's
1: what I'm going to remember. One of the things we've talked about when we sit around and have a, a couple of glasses of wine or beer is how things have changed, and and so I'm the oldest guy in my office. Um, I'm a couple of years younger than you, but mostly young younger. Folks, and the conversation is when I was coming up, it was very much a mentorship philosophy Hmm. that was very widespread. And maybe this is somewhat anecdotal, but I don't see as much of that around today as I used to. And it was a very, very big thing to have someone take you under the kid, Camille, let me, let me, you're doing it wrong. Let me, let me show you the ropes. And I know there's still some of that around. But I'm not sure if the people who are 25 or so, or 30, are going to be able to answer the same question in 25 years, who are your influences, who are your mentors, who really affected the way you think. And I, I think that's a, a great loss these days.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and some of that, you know, you, you, earlier you talked a little bit about the change in the industry composition. I mean, you know, you, there's a lot of more money with, you know, a, a handful of bigger firms, and what you hope is the big firms don't lose that. I think some of them do, and you know, investment management for some firms, it's just a little piece of a bigger mm-hmm. set right. of financial services they're providing. And we've definitely seen that um, when we hire people from some of those firms, you know, they're they're after they've been with us for a year or two, they go, "This is really different." And I think maybe it's getting to what you're describing. And I think again. You, it, it, the human element side of this business is really important. If you're going to really add value, you, you know, one of the ways you add value is through your people. And you need to put a lot of time and energy into that. And you can't treat people just as another
1: asset on the books um, who, you know, that happens to walk out at night. you got to really treat it specially. And finally, we get to our last question. I ask this of all of my guests. What do you know today about investing that you wish you knew Thirty years ago, when you started your career,
0: uh, global is good.
1: That's the big change from thirty years ago. So, are you saying thirty years you were domestic focused and you weren't thinking globally?
0: Yeah, I, I, I would not have. I, thirty years ago, it just would not have occurred to me to be thinking nearly as globally. And that's the big change for me. It's been, um, you know, uh, I'd like to think thirty years ago, you know, I believed in low cost because I joined Vanguard. Mm-hmm. I believed in indexing um, because we were a pioneer. Um, you know, getting asset allocation right was something we preach right from the get-go, but
1: I, I was not nearly as global in my thinking as I needed to be. And, and, and that's really a fascinating change. Hey, listen, when we look around the world, the U.S. is more than a developed economy. It's a mature economy. Right. The same thing with Japan and that's Europe. Right. When you look globally, the the developing markets and the emerging markets are where all the global growth is likely to come from. So uh, uh, you're, uh, you're I'm drinking from the same cup that you are, there's little doubt that that's what the future has been. Bill, I, I can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. This has really been absolutely fascinating. Um, I just want to review. People want to find your your research and your work. It's at Vanguard Vanguard.com. Yep. Um, I meant to ask you about the nautical theme. Is it true? Everything is-
0: Everything. So the galley- We have a galley. Our, we don't have a gym. We have ship shape. <laughs> uh, we don't have employees. We have crew members.
1: You, you hinted at that in the yeah. last answer. That's what triggered yeah. it off. It's, it's, it's very nautical, but it builds a strong culture. To, to say the very least. Well, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much For spending so much time with us. Uh, You've been listening to my interview with Bill McNabb. He's the chairman and CEO of Vanguard Group. If you'd like more information, you know where you can check it out. Be sure and listen to all our other podcasts. And By this point, if you're still with us, just look an inch or two above or below on iTunes and you can see all the rest. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.